Hi, everyone. I'm Marielle Sabado, and this is Optin, your pre-optometry podcast. In this episode, I get the chance to talk with Dr. Trang Nguyen, a developmental optometrist that works with patients who present with low vision at an early age. I've been lucky enough to shadow her practice, and I admire her role in child development and how she uses vision therapy amongst other tools to help her patients see a better future. Welcome. I'm glad to have you on here. Let's start out with introducing yourself, what undergraduate and optometry school you went to, and where you are now. Okay. So uh, my name is Dr. Trang Nguyen. I attended UC Davis as my undergrad. My major was uh, physiology, and that was from uh, 1985 to 1989. And then I went to Southern California College of Optometry, which I think now is called Ketchum, right? School of Optometry, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and that was from 89 to 93. And then I did a year of residency in low vision at the Center for the Partially Sighted in 93 to 94. Awesome. So we know that you're a developmental optometrist and you also specialize in pediatrics. So could you explain how that works? Because it kind of seems like you have a specialty within a specialty. Yes. So okay. there are there's general optometry, and then you can specialize in developmental optometry. You can specialize in contact lens. You can specialize in ocular disease, in sports vision. Um, so developmental optometry falls under the category of optometry, but specializing in children. And vision therapy is a, a big um, component of developmental optometry. And how did you kind of fall into that specialty from general optometry? I, during my residency, uh, you, in low vision, you're seeing patients who are visually impaired to legally blind, and you're getting exposed to patients of all age groups from birth with congenital eye problems all the way to um, centurions with age-related eye changes. So part of the residency was to get really involved into examining children. And so I was under the tutelage of Dr. Bill Takeshita, who was the uh, chief of pediatrics for the Center for the Partially Sighted at the time. So I learned how to do low vision exams on pediatrics. In addition to that, he also had a private practice uh, where he saw children. And so um, after I completed my residency, I worked at the center for the partially sighted, but I also worked with Dr. Bill in his private practice. So that's how those two merged together. Got it. And so you're um, in your own practice now, is that correct? Yes. Dr. Bill retired. And so I went ahead and bought his practice and just continued on um, under my name. Very cool. And being that your main patient population are children, I wanted to know from your perspective how early a child should be seen by an optometrist, whether or not they're showing signs of having visual problems. Yes. So the American Optometric Association recommends that children as early as six months of age, um, you know, usually between six months to a year, should receive their first just baseline eye exam. The main things you're screening for children of that age is whether or not there are any congenital problems. 
problems, such as if you take pictures of your baby and you see one whole pupil completely white, that's an indication that he or she needs to be examined to rule out retinoblastoma, which is, you know, cancer of the eye. So that's like the really one of the big ones. But other things that are involved in that would be if you happen to see your baby's eyes shake or wander, um, if they look like they're turning in and you're not so sure if it's a pseudostrabismus or a true strabismus, um, early detection of eye conditions like that leads to early intervention and with early intervention leads to better success of treatment. So at six year, at six months to a year, you're going to um, assess the child differently versus at three years of age or five years of age when they are more verbal. At that early of an age, you're really relying on your skills that you have learned through optometry school. You're going to rely on your um, ability to do retinoscopy. You're going to rely on your ability to assess the um, from outer to inner uh, of their eyes. And just, it's a very fast exam because, you know, children, babies at that age, they're squirmy. They, you know, most of, some of them are very cooperative, actually, and they can sit still. But for the most part, you really have to rely on your clinical skills to get a general assessment of how well they're seeing, how well they're fixating on your targets, how well they're moving their eyes, following a target, what their peripheral vision is. Is it intact or are there areas of neglect or defect? And then you go straight into your retinoscopy to assess, is there uh, refractive error within reason for someone of that age, or is it above and is prescription needed? Um, and then you're assessing the ocular health. So, so those things, once you assess that, you can assure the parents, okay, what you're seeing is, is normal, let's follow up, or is it warrant a referral to uh, ophthalmologist, a pediatric ophthalmologist for further testing? Got it. And you mentioned that um, you recommend for patients to be seen around six months to a year. Um, and I'm just curious, how typical is that, that you see that people, that parents bring in their children at that age? Because I know growing up for me, as I just went to a pediatrician and I didn't really, they didn't say I had any signs of anything. And so is it typical for your patient population to come in because they've already had problems or is it, do you also see patients that are just going in to see a general optom or an optometrist? That's a really great question. I specialize in pediatrics, but my niche is in children with significant developmental delays. And so I think that the, that population is more aware of visual issues as it is in the, in, in, um, in line with all the other developmental delays that their child may have. So, so I see children who are on the spectrum. I see children with CP. I see children with um, ROP. I see children who are um, born with uh, seizures, congenital seizures or congenital cataracts or any of those um, uh, diagnoses. And so they are, they, they and their families have been used to having a team of therapists that are working with their babies, with their child. So a developmental optometrist such as myself is a natural progression. Um, so that I would see them 
very early on because all of their therapists, whether it be speech language therapists, occupational therapists, um, neurologist, developmental pediatrician are aware of how significant vision and vision development would play a role in that child's overall development. Then you have the next population, such as you, where everything is normal, you don't have any pre-existing health conditions, that's where you kind of have to go out there and market yourself or make yourself be known to your community should you wish to go into developmental optometry. And it's also by word of mouth too. You know, the more kids that you see and the more things that you pick up that go undetected through a general pediatric uh, or pediatrician's examination, the more your name gets uh, around. So that population, you're right, you know, usually you go in, you get screened, you pass the screening test, and you go in year after year for your well check, and really nothing is being asked about an eye exam until age three. But my daughter, had I not examined her at age one, we would have not picked up that she was a plus 10 and that she needed glasses or else her eyes would start to cross. Mm -hmm. So there is an importance for having children be screened at an earlier age, but not everybody is aware of that. So when you are set up in your own practice, it's good to get out there, introduce yourself to the pediatricians, to the, and depending on how far you want to get into pediatrics and learning delays and academic delays, certainly you want to reach out to the speech language, to the OTs, and to the um, educational psychologist too. But in general, your first contact person would be the pediatricians to let them know, hey, you know, three years of age in some kids is too late. So it's better to do earlier rather than later. Mm -hmm. Got it. That's very good advice because I hope more than just optometry students listen to this. Um, so you mentioned that you're usually part of a team of doctors. You work with pediatricians, psychologists, occupational therapists. And so what I was wondering was what you offer to the team as a developmental optometrist in an overall assessment of a patient. Yes. So, you know, we know the importance of the visual system, right? The visual system guides all the other systems in your body. It guides your vestibular system, your sensory system. Um, it goes hand in hand with your auditory system. Um, so if there are delays in your visual system, whether it be amblyopia or lazy eye, strabismus, or, you know, turned eye or, or eye turning out, eyes crossing in, um, or just not coordinating the eyes and the body together, integrating it together, um, pursuit eye movement skills, if you have weak pursuit eye movement, eye movement skills, if you have weak convergence eye teaming skills, or tracking skills, any of those skills in your visual system that are delayed is going to impact your motor system, your sensory system. So the therapists who are in tune with the importance of the vision as how it pertains to what they're doing will know, they'll, they'll do some general assessment of that. And then they'll refer if they have some concerns or red flags, they'll say, okay, we know that having OT for gross or fine motor skills is going to be hindered if we don't assess the vision. Or 
a speech therapist will know if a child is not able to track or or follow their their flashcards or any of the um, uh, tools that they're using to work on speech therapy, they know the vision plays a role in that. If the child can't see well or track well, then it warrants uh, the vision assessment. Um, so that's where working together as a team is really critical because they're trying to get information from the developmental optometrist as to how well does that child see? Does that child need glasses? Does that child need vision therapy concurrently with what we're doing in order to really make the treatment as effective as possible? Got it. Um, and you mentioned vision therapy a lot. So could you talk a little bit more about what that is and what you do during those sessions with the, the kids? Yes. Um, so a developmental eye examination comprises of your comprehensive eye examination, which is basically what I covered um, already. But in addition to that, when a child becomes um, six years of age, we start track, we start testing their visual tracking skills for reading readiness. And if the parents feel that their child is also behind academically, we want to see what their visual processing skills are too. So let's just say their eyes are perfect. Everything is checked off. They have great vision, great pursuits, great convergence, good tracking, but they're still reading a year or two below grade level. We want to see how their visual cortex, the occipital lobe, how they're processing visual information that is transmitted from the eyes. And so there is a test called the test of vision perception skills that has seven subtests to it. And it assesses how well a child scores and performs at his or her age level. If everything checks out well in that area, then we know that the learning delays is not a result of their vision or their visual system. So I get a lot of referrals from the school districts, from developmental pediatricians or educational psychologists that may have already ran their testing, and they just need more in-depth information on how that child processes visual information. Let's say they, we come up with, okay, there are some vision problems, maybe amblyopia, maybe strabismus, and then in addition to that, they have some tracking and visual processing. Based upon the severity of the areas of weaknesses, we determine whether or not vision therapy is deemed appropriate and whether it's appropriate to have both office-based vision therapy and home-based therapy, or whether a home-based program is adequate with regular checking in and following up with me. So those are the things that I take a look at. I see the severity of it. I determine the length of time that vision therapy would be needed. In my practice, um, it's just me. So I do the assessment and then I gauge the severity of it and then I have a conversation with the parents and I say where I think vision therapy falls in place with the current treatment that they have as the team. And then we make the decision as to whether or not we do vision therapy or not. There are some cases where I stress that it is priority, that that's gonna help everything else fall into place a lot easier in terms of treatment. And then there are other cases where I feel that we can circle back to me at some point to do vision therapy because I think that there are other things that take more priority. Vision therapy, working one-on-one -on -one with a doctor, um, it helps me to, um, I, I have no problem with you know, vision therapists working with 
a doctor to do vision therapy. But I think what is unique in my practice is that um, I do the treatment. So I get to see how the child is performing on a weekly basis. And I get to modify my treatment plan or my vision therapy activities right on the spot if I need to. If I see that something is very challenging, we focus on that and we we change the whole program. I could go in thinking that these are the activities that we're gonna do for the day. And then as I watch the child do specific activities, I may modify it right then and there. So, and then in other practices, the doctor um, consults with his vision therapist, creates a plan, um, but there may not be those modifications right on the spot. Um, so my length of treatment may be shorter than, than uh, those that are having a collaboration with the optometrist and the therapist. Got it. So um, kind of going off of that, what do you like about your specialty and what is it like working with a population of mainly children? I, what I love about it is that um, these families follow me from the time that their child is a baby all the way to when they go off to college. So I've had kids that I've seen at two to three years of age, and they've come back, graduated from college, and still come to see me. So, you know, at that point, we transfer them from a pediatric type of exam to an adult exam. Well, I'll tell them, hey, you know, we got to do these types of tests now for you because, you know, you're an adult. But that's the neat part of it. Um, I get Christmas cards. I get, you know, holiday cards and everything like that along the way. Um, you get to see the progression of how they mature. Um, and the joy of it is that kids are very, um, they're very honest. They will tell you exactly what's going on. You know, it's, it's just, that's the beauty of having kids, right? They, they, there's no filter. So you get to know exactly what they're seeing, what's happening. Um, your exams are usually different from one child to the next because one child will be very well behaved, They'll sit nice and calmly all the way through. And then the next exam you get, you get a, a wiggle worm. And you have, to, you have to modify your exam on the spur of the moment throughout the day. So the day goes by really fast. It's, it's enjoyable. They'll share with you um, their school stories. Uh, I'll, have, I'll have kids that come in and they'll call me dude. Like I'm just <laughs> another regular person in their life or or I'll, I'll ask a little girl how school was today and she goes oh it's great because I got back together with my boyfriend and she's only six so you know it's just you know it just makes for a really great day um, and because some of the cases I see are really complex um, it just keeps your brain going all the time you're never going to see one similar exam after the other it's always going to be different so that's what i enjoy that's that i like that and you were so you graduated in nine, 1993 so you've been practicing for over 20 years yes i would say let's see i bought the practice that i'm currently at in the year 2000 and oh. prior to that i was still doing low vision and the combo with with dr bill so I would say there were probably about three to four years prior to that. So a total of 23 years or so wow. of doing this, yes. And now that it's your own practice, is there any like frustrations that you go through with 
um, the population or just owning your own practice? Yes. So I think my situation, I love, um, my situation is one where I'm doing office overhead sharing. Um, and so it works for me as a single mom because I'm able to um, go in, do my assessments, do my testing, and go home and be with my kids. Um, yes, I have you know an emergency line where I can be on call, um, but really the time that I set aside as a private practitioner, um, I set my hours, I set my working days, and certainly with COVID, I had to you know pivot and make the changes like everybody else did. But um, I'm able to be in charge, but I don't necessarily have to. Um, deal with perhaps all the problems and headaches of staff management because that's part of the office overhead sharing. Um, I pay a percentage and the doctors that own that practice, um, I pay part of the rent for the space that I have and I just go in, go to work, they do all of the billing for me and all of the chart work and everything else scheduling. I just go in, do my work and go home. So the situation works really well for me and what my needs are. Um, the, some of the frustrations, I think, if any, on a day-to-day -day basis would be just um, any case that comes to me, some are very easy and others are heartbreaking and challenging in the sense that if I have a baby that was born premature or um, went through complications at delivery and then now coming to me with all of these physical um, and emotional and psychological challenges, then, you know, depending on the severity of it, it, it can touch your heart and it can make you feel, oh gosh, you know, they've got an uphill battle. But what mm -hmm. I admire about the families and the parents that have children like this is that they are all in. They will do everything in their power, financially, emotionally, time invested, to make sure that their child gets everything that they need. And so that's heartwarming to me because in that, you know, you stop and you think, oh, how blessed are you, me, that I have two healthy children because you get to see families with children that may be not quite as blessed, but yet the love is so strong there that it just kind of puts everything into perspective. So no matter how difficult my day could be or how difficult a certain exam could be, you take a look at the big picture and you walk away feeling very blessed. And if you, and if you meaning me, could be a part of that team that helps that child get just a little bit better, then I, you know, I'm happy to know that I was part of that team. Wow. That is a great way to put it. I can only imagine, and I'm so excited for that moment when it comes for me and my first patient. Um, but in the meantime, I do want to segue into questions that are geared more towards the listeners who have an interest in the profession. So my first question is, what made you choose optometry over all the other health professions out there? I knew early on that I wanted to be in the healthcare field. And when I was at UC Davis, um, I wanted to work while going to school. So I got a job at an optometrist's office and that enabled me to see firsthand um, what a potential career in optometry could be. And, you know, Davis, I don't know if you know, but Davis is like a small college town and their office was really neat. They converted a house 
into an office. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you walk into this house and you have the, um, the entryway and you had the counter where you check in um, their kitchen and adjacent room was set up as um, the, the lab for the, you know, where you go and you adjust the glasses and you fix frames and all of that. Um, and then each of the bedrooms was converted into an exam room and pre-testing room. And so it was really quaint. It was a small town feel. Um, all the patients knew the two doctors that worked there and I got to work front desk. I got to do optical and uh, glasses adjustment, frame selection. And then eventually uh, you work there long enough, you got to do some pre-testing. Uh -huh. So um, that patient interaction was really neat. And that I think solidified my desire to um, go into optometry school. Ah, do you know if that building still exists or if those... I honestly don't know. I think both of those doctors have probably since retired, mm -hmm. um, but I still remember their names. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, certain people make a mark and an impact in yeah. your life. And those were the two that sort of spearheaded my way in. You know, they wrote me recommendation letters. Um, and then I met uh, a, one of my good friends that we still stay in touch with. We met through working at Davis there at that office. Um, she went to SUNY and then she has then, you know, come back here and worked uh, here now, but we stayed in touch all through those years. Um, and then another question, what are your biggest takeaways from being an optometrist and how has it kind of changed your perspective and healthcare and, and, or your view on the world? I know you touched on it being very heartwarming and taking the bigger picture, but if you have anything else to add to that. Yes, I think, well, when, when I first entered optometry school, the ratio of men to women, male to female optometry, was still two to one. There was, it was a male dominant uh, profession. Mm -hmm. That has since changed. I think my class was the first class where there was 70% female to 30% mm -hmm. male. Um, and since then, I think you know, it's trending more female than males. Um, also at that time, therapeutics was just beginning to take off. Um, and since then, legislation and most of the states have worked, you know, just so hard in trying to push optometry into the next um, level of being able to prescribe. And, and I think they've done a really good job of it overall. So I think looking at all of that, our profession is now in a position where we can really be in the front line. We're gonna be your first tier people, especially in rural areas where there are not a lot of ophthalmology mm -hmm. um, or ophthalmologists around. We're gonna be the first group of doctors who are going to diagnose and treat. And the ability to go through optometry school and learn all of the medical aspect of it is so critical at this point to continue pushing optometry forward. So I think that that's very, very important. But the main thing I hope all optometry students can take away from it is that our specialty should and always will be, I hope, um, the art of refraction, the art of prescribing learning that visual science and optics and understanding what prescribing is all about because that is that is our own that nobody can take that away from us that is what 
I view is the uniqueness of optometry. We can prescribe, we can treat, we can do surgery, we can do whatever down the road and absolutely go for all of that. But never, ever, ever forget the visual science and the optics and how to prescribe because there's such an art to it and patients appreciate when you know the ins and outs of using prisms and, and antipsychotic lenses and all of these other things that are just truly ours and ours alone, that they will come back to you and they will be so loyal and faithful to you. And so I think on a global standpoint, what I would love to do at some point is do those mission works, you know, to, to go out there um, to all of these other countries that are developing and are in need and just provide your services on just the very basic level of eye care, you would change someone's life for the better. So I think looking at it from um, where we are now to global, that's where I think optometry has such a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. I've heard so many stories about people putting on glasses for the first time yeah. in their 20s even, or even past that. And it just you know, changes your perspective on how, how different our country is and in, in the opportunities and the access we have. And I've also heard like patients having to walk like miles just to get to their optometrist. It's, it's yes. crazy yes. to think. And so we, yes. And so as you enter optometry school and you're required to buy your equipment, um, yes, we have auto for opters. Yes, we have automated everything, this, that, and the other. But your handheld equipment that you buy, that is your tool. That is your skill set. That is what you need to use. That that's retinoscope, um, because gosh, when you travel to these other countries, you'll be lucky if you have anything automated. You know, when you go on these mission trips, you're going to rely so heavily on your handheld tools, your BIO, your retinoscope. You're going to rely on your ability to, to scope and to see the reflex and to diagnose. Is there cataracts in addition to, you know, other things that you're seeing? So it's going to be basic, bare bones types of equipment. And you're just going to have to rely on what you've learned in optometry school. If that is your calling is to go and do that and to make an impact globally then take the, the moment and the time that you have in school, learn from your professors, get as much um, number of hours of clinical experience as you can underneath your belt, because then you're gonna be able to turn around and make an impact on the world and have somebody come and shadow you down the road and you know continue this profession forward that I, that I hope that you will. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, that's really inspirational to kind of bring it into perspective that, like that. And it is, it's so uplifting, you know, even in your own practice or at the clinic that you'll be at, when you see a baby or anybody put on their glasses for the first time and they start crying because they can actually see their parents' faces or the, or the leaves on the tree, that is going to be your takeaway. That's going to be the best feeling that you've had for that whole day or that whole week. Um, or somebody comes back and tells you, I got an A on my test because now I was able to study without falling asleep or getting tired um, 15 minutes into it. Those are the days and those are the stories that make all the other days, the difficult ones, um, so well worth it. So um, definitely, if you have the calling to do that, certainly look into organizations and i'm sure that the optometry schools are affiliated or have mm. some sort of resource or connection should you want to go into that 
Awesome. Yeah, I definitely have a big interest in going abroad with optometry at some point. So that's really good advice. Um, I guess my last question that I have on my list here is um, bringing it back to your specialty. Are there any tips for students with an interest in pediatrics? And do you feel like there's a demand? Do you have a lot of colleagues that you collaborate with in your specialty? Development of optometry, um, there is a demand. Um, I think optometry schools nowadays really try to focus more on the ocular disease management and treatment and contact lens and specialty contact lens. And so um, developmental optometry is lower on the list. Um, with that in mind, there is going to be a demand for it. Um, um, attend your local society meetings. Um, they are open to students. They're free to students, I believe. Um, and that's where you get to go to these CE meetings. You get to meet the doctors that have their own private practice. And if they specialize in the area that you love, sit down, talk to them, introduce yourself. Because somewhere down the line, that initial connection could circle back again into something fruitful for you in terms of becoming an associate or perhaps even um, buying their practice, you know, because as doctors that have been in a practice for a long time, our thought process now at this point is, okay, what's my five-year goal? What's my 10-year plan? Um, when do I want to slow down? When do I want to retire or, or sell my practice? And so we're always, we're working so hard to build up our practice, but at some point we want to see what the other side holds for us as well. And so making these connections with the young doctors, starting out as students, but later on, seeing how dedicated you are to perhaps taking over our practice, because that we put everything into it. Mm. So of course, we hope to meet somebody who has to share the same passion and dedication. All of those things can help you in building up your name, your reputation, and hopefully getting you to the practice choice of, that you want. Great. Well, that is all the questions I have. So I just want to thank you again for being my first interviewee. This was really fun. Sure. I'm happy <laughs> to be your guinea pig. I hope that I answered everything that you yeah. wanted to know about. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people will find this useful. That's why I was asking more about, you know, children because even though my friends are not having babies yet, um, eventually people come to the um, road where they decide to have kids and, you know, they don't really, there's not a lot out there. I, I think, you know, and that's a really good point. I think as moms or, or new moms, you're always like making sure, is my child meeting all milestones? Mm -hmm. So then as whether you're an optometrist and a mom or not, you're still making sure that your child is meeting all the milestones. And if one, some of the milestones are not being met, then hopefully this podcast will um, enable them to understand that, hey, maybe having the child's eyes tested should be on the to-do list yeah. to make sure that nothing is going on there that is impacting their development. And there you have it. First opt-in episode in the books. I hope you all enjoyed listening in. We have a whole year of podcasts ahead of us. So please, if you have any topic requests or recommendations, feel free to shoot me an email at crackoat at gmail.com. 
And big thanks again to Crack OAT for sponsoring this podcast. If you haven't heard of them, they provide the most updated and affordable online study material for the OAT. And with the discount code OPTIN10, you can get 10% off the Hero Package online. Thanks again for listening and happy World Mental Health Day. Remember to be kind to yourself and keep doing what you love.